In this episode of the Broad Body Podcast, we're going to be diving into my in-service project that I presented at a PT clinical not too long ago. So this is going to be all about breathing and breath work and different breathing exercises and breathing patterns and things that you can do to start optimizing your breathing. It might not seem like it, but your ability to breathe has such a vast and drastic impact on so many systems and pieces in your body. And I will gladly make the argument any day that if you cannot breathe properly, you should not be exercising. It has to start with your ability to move oxygen. Before we dive into that, though, stay tuned for about two, three minutes. We're going to hear a word from our sponsors. The Brawn Body Podcast is also sponsored by CTM Band, Compression Tension Movement, founded by Dr. Kyle Bowling, sports chiropractor who treats elite runners. I'm talking Boston Marathon champions, NFL players, the jockeys that win the Kentucky Derby, Triple Crown winners. He's treated some of the best athletes, and these are the exact recovery products that he recommends and provides to them. Uh, so you can go to CTM dot band that's the website and use the coupon code brawn 10 b-r-a-w-n-1-0 and that'll get you 10 percent off at checkout so these are not only the products that he uses but they're also the products i use i currently have a ridge roller and the blue ctm band and i use them regularly i love them both and cannot recommend them enough second if you would like to purchase the massage gun that I use on myself, that I gift to friends, family, and that I use in clinical. That's right. I literally bring this thing with me and use it on people's muscles. Click the link below, and that's going to take you to the page specific for supporting the Brawn Body Podcast. So a percentage of all of the sales through that link, uh, purchasing that massage gun, go to us to help support us and keep bringing you awesome content. So if you're looking for a massage gun, one of the best ones I've found so far, the one that I personally use and recommend to people, click that link and it'll help us out. Thanks again and enjoy the show. First off, thank you all for joining with me to listen to this talk about the role of breathing and breath work in orthopedic physical therapy and orthopedic management of conditions. So just as kind of a general outline today, we're going to be talking about the respiratory anatomy and physiology and mechanics, kind of start from the ground up. So start with that base, talk about that A&P, and then we're going to talk about the application of breathing, something that we all do. It's simple, right? Two different orthopedic pathologies, things that we see regularly. We're then going to be talking about different types of breathing exercises and breathing patterns and applying them to our intervention. We'll draw some conclusions and we'll have time at the end for questions. For the podcast, I'm going to be kind of summarizing some of the discussion uh, from the Q&A section. So first off, why should I care? I always like to start with this because we're talking about breathing, right? I guarantee you some of you listening to this are saying, yeah, I breathe every day. I'm pretty good at it, I think. But Breathing dysfunction is correlated with poor sleep, higher stress levels, imbalance of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, back pain, muscular tightness, limited mobility, decreased athletic performance, teeth mispositioning and the need for uh, orthodontic intervention, and dry mouth. Listen to those um, things that breathing dysfunction is correlated with again. Look at that list a little bit. 
How many of you have had a poor night's sleep or been high, high in stress? How many of you have had some back aches or some different tight muscles or things don't move like they used to anymore? How many of you have woken up in the morning and you got a dry mouth, right? Everyone, to some extent, breathes incorrectly at some point. And improper breathing has side effects, just like a medication, right? So we're going to be talking about what those side effects are. Well, we just did that. And now we're going to kind of dive into why they occur and what we can do about it. So starting from the ground up, like we talked about with the anatomy. As you know, we have 12 ribs that encompass the thoracic cavity. So these things surround the lungs. The lungs are obviously where oxygen exchange and movement and breathing occurs. So those 12 ribs come off of the 12 thoracic vertebra. As you may know, uh, there's cases where people can have an extra rib. So we usually call that a cervical rib, um, but we're not really going to concern ourselves with that right now. So the first seven ribs, ribs one to seven, connect by ways of the costocartilage. These are the true ribs that connect directly to the sternum. Eight to 10 are called false ribs because they connect through the one above. So they kind of daisy chain their way in through coastal cartilage to connect to the sternum. Ribs 11 and 12 float. So they do not connect to your sternum at all. They're just kind of floating there in space. The sternum itself has a manubrium, which is the top, the body in the middle, and the xiphoid process down at the bottom. There can be different deformities of the sternum, the sternal angle specifically, and that can kind of impact our breathing. So we call one pigeon chest and one funnel chest. Pigeon chest or pectus uh, carinatum is uh, how you pronounce it if you get technical, I believe. Uh, basically, the chest kind of expands outwards or funnel chest is more of a recession. Uh, pectus cavus is the name for that, I believe. So the funnel chest is obviously more detrimental because we're limiting or reducing the amount of space that we have for the lungs. And obviously, if we have pathology that impact the ribs, maybe tight muscles or anything that might limit rib expansion, we're going to have issues with our breathing, the amount of uh, room our lungs have to expand and recoil. So we started from the bones, but what about the muscles? So when you're breathing in inspiration, the diaphragm should be the primary muscle. So the diaphragm flattens on inspiration, and that flattening increases the volume in the thoracic cavity, right? That increase in volume decreases the pressure in the lungs because pressure and volume have an inverse relation. So increase in volume, decrease pressure, that moves air into the lungs. Diaphragm is the main muscle there. The other one is the external intercostals. They help to elevate the ribs. And then there's a couple other muscles, your sternocleidomastoid and your scalenes uh, primarily, that help to elevate your ribs, specifically the upper ribs. We'll talk about, the, well, we'll talk about them now. Basically, certain people will present with pathology. So maybe they breathe heavy in their upper chest. That's what I would consider a breathing dysfunction. They're not taking in a full deep inspiration and breathing with the diaphragm. Instead, they're breathing primarily with these accessory muscles, their scalenes and their SCM. When they do that, those muscles get tight. 
And when they get tight, they cause pain. They get irritated. Some of them connect to your head, your neck, your cervical spine, and they pull. Maybe especially if they're breathing more on one side up high than the other. So that causes muscle imbalances, pain, and so on and so on. Expiration is primarily done uh, through the abdominals and your internal intercostals if you're really actively breathing, if you're working hard. If you're just sitting quietly, it should happen kind of passively. Just let the diaphragm recoil, right? Decrease the volume in that space, and then the pressure is going to increase, which will push air out. So breathing should not be a overly labor-intensive process if done correctly. So diaphragm is the main inspiratory muscle. Expiration, if it's quiet, should be pretty kind of passive. And then if it's active, there's going to be some other muscles like your abs and your internal intercostals that kind of kick in to help out there. Most of the dysfunction we see is with inspiration, that upper chest breathing kind of pattern. And that's especially worse because we consider the ventilation perfusion mismatch. So if we want to optimize our breathing, we want the air in the bottom part of our lungs because that's where the most blood is. However, we often see people shallow breathe and that puts most of the air in the top of their lungs. Well, when they do that, there's a lot less blood flow to the top of the lungs than the bottom. So we have a mismatch between air ventilation and blood perfusion to the area. And that limits how much oxygen we can take in. Kind of on top of that too, we've talked about the ribs. We've talked about these muscles. The ribs move in some weird ways. I'm going to describe them as pump handle and bucket handle. So if you have a bucket, right, what can happen to that handle? It swings side to side, right? If you have a pump, I'm talking a water pump, you can go up and down. The ribs kind of fit the same profile. So you have pump handle motion up and down. This is the sagittal plane, so anterior, posterior motion of the ribs. You also have a bucket handle, which increases the space from a medial to lateral direction. So those rib movements, that kind of up and out and down and in, those kind of patterns explain the uh, kind of changes that we see in the volume in the thoracic cavity. Now, we said anatomy and physiology. So we talked about the anatomy. Now, the physiology. I want to touch on one specific thing, and that's cranial nerve 10, the vagus nerve. So you obviously know about the other stuff. We talked about oxygen, pressure changes already. Vagus nerve, cranial nerve 10, innervates your heart, your lungs, your carotid, all these different internal organs in your abdomen. It's a mixed nerve and it is your primary parasympathetic nerve. So this is kind of the rest and digest kind of nerve for your body. So it innervates all these different organs. It innervates your diaphragm. It's huge, right? So why are we concerned about that? Well, if it innervates your lungs, if your lungs connect to your parasympathetic nerve, then what you do when you're breathing, what you do with your lungs is going to directly influence that nerve. So this is the nerve that tells your body to rest, relax, digest, break down, tone it down a little bit, right? This is the nerve that a lot of us say we need more of. 
and we can increase the tone of this nerve through breathing. Now, this is meant for fitness, training, physical therapy intervention. So we're going to touch on that as we go, but I also want to touch on some more biomechanically sound movement-based things. So I want to touch on stability in the core system. So initially, we kind of followed what's called the Euler or Euler model for spine stability, which said it's all about the ligaments that control the spine stability. We know now that's not the case. We know now that spine stability comes from muscle activation. Your core is what controls your uh, spine stability. Well, I like to go by Mary Masary's model of the core. And this was something we talked about uh, for the podcast back in episode 11 with Eric Kaplan. We talked about this model of the core. So the core is kind of like a soda can, according to Mary Masary. You have a top, a bottom, and sides. And those sides kind of wrap around, right? So the top is the diaphragm. So your breathing, your diaphragm, has control over your thoracic and abdominal pressures. We've talked about that already with the thoracic. Well, the cavity below the thoracic cavity is the abdominal cavity. So as you breathe in, as that diaphragm flattens and pushes down, it's increasing the volume in the thoracic cavity, but it's decreasing the volume in the abdominal cavity. And when you decrease volume, you increase pressure. So That's the diaphragm's role in this whole core thing and abdominal pressure, which plays into spine stability. We've also got the pelvic floor at the bottom, which is important for a lot of reasons. I'm not going to go into them right now because that's kind of out of our scope for the purpose of this discussion, but pelvic floor, obviously very important. The multifidi, so lumbar, paraspinal musculature, kind of make up the back wall and the transverse abdominis and other core muscles that wrap around from the spine, kind of forming like a corset, so to speak, that forms kind of the side and front walls. Overall, your core tends to be non-directional, anticipatory, and mostly slow twitch fibers. Now, as we talked about in that core training episode, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do fast twitch core activities. That just means that in general, that's what kind of muscle fiber types you have there. So obviously, if you have core dysfunction, you're going to see changes in your movement patterns, changes in postural control, changes in continence through the pelvic floor, changes in your ability to stabilize your spine, and respiratory changes. Now, in this case, what comes first, chicken or the egg? Does the breathing cause poor spine stability, or does poor spine stability cause bad breathing? I don't know. And no one seems to know, but we know that there's a strong link there. So it's probably a good idea to make sure you address it. So let's look at some of the research. So we're starting out with an article from the New Zealand Journal 2009, Altered Breathing Patterns During Lumbopelvic Motor Control Tests in Chronic Low Back Pain. Do you know anyone who's been in chronic low back pain? I know all the PTs in this room right now are currently laughing, but... A lot of people have low back pain. This study looked at that and looked at breathing patterns, and they found that people who have chronic low back pain have significantly altered breathing patterns. Again, what came first, chicken or the egg? 
Was their breathing causing their back pain or did their back pain cause breathing changes? We don't really know. But again, we know that there's some kind of link between changes in breathing pattern and they looked at um, motor control tests in this study and we were able to, they were able to link the performance of breathing in that motor control test to the uh, back pain that they were in. So that was a 2009 study. I know someone out there is looking at that and saying, hey, I want something more recent. Well, here's something from 2020. I like to say this is one of the few good things that came from 2020. Uh, This article was published in the Annals of Rehab Medicine, and this is called Differences of Spinal Curvature, Thoracic Mobility, and Respiratory Strength Between Chronic Neck Pain Patients and People Without Cervical Pain. So not only did they look at breathing, but they also looked at uh, mobility. They looked at spine curvatures, so a little integration of posture, and they looked at neck pain. And what they found is during forced respiration, so when you're breathing air out quickly, there was a link with poor thoracic mobility and neck pain. So basically, changes in the biomechanics of your spine and your rib cage due to neck pain may contribute to impairing your ability to breathe. And again, the opposite could also be true. Maybe it's the changes in your ability to breathe that contribute to cervicothoracic and ribcage changes. Bottom line, as I've said probably a thousand times already, we don't know which comes first. We have no way of knowing that. We can't research that and possibly find out, but we know there's a link there. So I talk about back pain because a lot of people have back pain, but breathing can be used for a lot of other purposes. So if you have no stable core, you're going to have issues elsewhere. Maybe not right away, but long term. So if you have patients with lower extremity dysfunction, so hip, knee, ankle, look at the core. Make sure they can stabilize their core. Address breathing if they can't because breathing can help to stabilize the core. Also look at patients with sympathetic disorders, so T4 syndrome, chronic regional pain syndrome, that sort of thing. If you have one of those, addressing something to decrease that sympathetic flow and increase the parasympathetic, that rest and digest, relax kind of stuff, probably a good thing. Endurance athletes, they're kind of notorious for having breathing problems. You would think they'd be really good at breathing, right? But a lot of them have a tendency to mouth breathe. And I don't remember if we talked about this before or not, but mouth breathing changes the pressure gradient. So air should flow in through your nose. There's nasal concha or concha we call them literally some bones in your nose that spin the air and that circulation of air allows it to warm up and kind of changes the moisture humidity of it a little bit and then it enters your lungs from there it also helps to filter the air right through those uh your snot and your hairs and all the stuff up in there and then air flows back out your mouth that's the ideal way to do it Now, if air flows in through your mouth and out through your mouth, that doesn't happen. The air would spin on the bones of your teeth and not the bones in your nose. So that could cause changes and shifting and malpositioning in your teeth, a.k.a. uh, the need for orthodontic work. We talked about that earlier, uh, which is bad. But we also have a lack of filtration. 
So less filter, more bacteria and bad stuff gets in that we don't want to get in, which is bad. And that bad stuff is literally coming in contact with your teeth. So if we have no way of filtering bacteria and they're constantly coming in contact with your mouth, what do you think is going to happen? That chronic bad breath that we mentioned earlier starts to form. Other kind of dental problems start to form. And I'm by no means an expert in the world of dentistry, but it's something that no one really enjoys, right? I've not met someone yet who's like, I love going to the dentist. I've not yet met someone who's like, I love having bad breath and, you know, misformed teeth and all these different things. So, and that that's not just for your patients, but that's for you too, whether you're listening to the podcast or you're just kind of here listening now. So... Additionally, you can use breathing to increase stretch. Uh, So one of the patients, you know, I've been treating a guy with a whiplash and I have him breathe into my hands different times to increase mobility in certain segments. And that's been a way that we help to increase stretch throughout the thoracic spine. You can also use this to improve sleep. While I say that too, consider the impact of someone who's kind of sleep deprived, poor sleep, on their biomechanics and their overall movement, right? So with that in mind, another chicken or the egg situation, we've had a lot of them here, you know, is their poor breathing due to a lack of sleep or is their uh, poor breathing causing a lack of sleep, which is causing other problems? So as we've talked in the past, poor sleep can cause a whole host of disorders and problems, altering your biomechanical movement patterns, decreasing muscle recovery and motor unit recruitment and so on. Breathing can also improve your relaxation and it also plays a role in spine manipulation. So I'm going to say this kind of jokingly. Have you ever tried to do a thoracic pistol manipulation uh, for the uh, thoracic spine, obviously? When someone's got full lungs, it doesn't go well. You want them to breathe out. That's why you instruct them to breathe out before you manipulate. So with that, we want to start training breathing. There's some different breathing techniques we can look at. So let's start with the sympathetic patterns. So double breath and sympathetic huff breath. The whole point here is to increase your intra-abdominal pressure, activating your sympathetic nervous system. So this actually shuts off the parasympathetic and turns on the sympathetic to help prepare your body for heavy lifting and vigorous exercise. You know, this could be something you throw under that biohack kind of bucket if you want a catch-all term. The best way to do this is in the position you're going to be performing an exercise in or whatever. So if you're going to be deadlifting or squatting, do this standing. If you're going to be doing a hip thrust with a couple hundred pounds, then you should probably do this in that hip thrust kind of position, laying on your back, feet up, that sort of thing. So the double breath. With this, you want to inhale fully through your nose all the way in, and then inhale through your mouth as much as you can, and push your tongue up to form a seal. Brace your core and then lift. So this puts as much air in as you can, and then you close it off, close the hatch, and brace. So that's about as high up as you can increase your uh, intra-abdominal pressure if you do these things correctly. And that helps keep your lower back safe, and it gives you more 
proximal stability, which enhances your distal mobility, so mobility elsewhere further from the joint. The sympathetic huff breath, you're going to do four to five rapid inhale-exhale. Just like that, in, out, in, out, in, out. So you should be making some kind of audible breathing noise when you breathe out. That's how we know it's a forced expiration. It's either going to sound like a huff or some other noise. With these techniques, especially that huff breath, watch out for people. And if you're someone who has one of these things, just keep it in mind. If you have blood pressure irregularities, if you've got a history of getting lightheaded, vertebral artery type stuff, there's a lot of different kind of signs that you should watch out for. So I always like to kind of perform a nice thorough medical review here just to make sure they're appropriate for these interventions, one, and two, make sure if necessary that they get clearance from their doctor. Uh, And if you're someone listening to the podcast, make sure you get clearance from your doctor if you're not doing anything like this already to be able to do these things because obviously uh, they can have more effects than just, you know, what we're after for an exercise purpose. Next up, supine and prone diaphragmatic breathing, rhythmic breathing, and tactical breathing. So the goal of these three uh, interventions, I kind of paired them together, is activation of the parasympathetic nervous system and improving your respiratory mechanics through deep diaphragmatic breathing, turning on that diaphragm. So for basic diaphragmatic breathing, you're going to position the patient in supine or prone. So either lay on your back or lay on your stomach. Personally, I like laying on your stomach or laying on your back better. Uh, I think that's the better position there, supine. You're going to have them put their hands on the abdomen. So put their hands right on it instruct them to breathe into their hands through their nose and out their mouth. So I like that kind of tactile cue because it's kind of hard to mess up a breathe into my hands, right? You either do it or you don't. So it kind of adds that next level support that sometimes people need. So our goal here is a 2-1-2 ratio for inhale, hold, exhale. So we want to inhale, maybe we do a four-second inhale, a two-second hold, and a four-second exhale, something like that, right? So that's the diaphragmatic, pretty basic, pretty easy to do. Rhythmic is very similar to that, but now we're going to do a one-to-one ratio of inhale to exhale with no hold. That's why it's rhythmic, right? It's like a rhythm, like a metronome swinging back and forth. There's no stop. So With that, maybe we do a four-second inhale and a four-second exhale. In real slow, out real slow. So just a nice little one, two, three, four count, and a one, two, three, four count back out. Box breathing is a one-to-one ratio of inhale-exhale, but it also includes holds. So we inhale, breathe in, and hold. Then we breathe out and hold. And all of those numbers are in a one-to-one ratio. So maybe it's a two-second inhale, two-second hold, two-second exhale, two-second hold. So different ways to kind of do similar interventions there. The whole goal here is going to be decreasing stress and regulating sympathetic tone, as well as optimizing your respiratory mechanics like we talked about. 
So this can be something huge, uh, especially for those with sleep dysfunction and issues sleeping. Uh, you can use these anywhere. It's free. It's easy to access, right? So the, uh, the tactical breathing, it's actually called that because it was uh, created by the military. They used it to help soldiers fall asleep and relax anywhere. And if you know any veterans, you'll know that, or if you yourself are a veteran, uh, in the case of Dan there, if you um, talk with them, you'll realize that they can fall asleep in you know crazy places, pretty much anywhere. And a lot of them had been instructed on how to do this. And, you know, they were told, you have to be able to do this. This will help you. And they get used to it. And then, of course, when they need to go to sleep, they do something like this. So a lot of power to that. So I'm going to take two things here from some colleagues. Uh, so first one is from Dr. John Russin, the performance recovery system, parasympathetic positional breathe, uh, breathing or breath. And the second one is the physiological breath or physiological sigh from Dr. Andrew Huberman. So, John Russin's PRS, parasympathetic positional breathing. Obviously, we're after the parasympathetic nervous system, which does all kinds of amazing things. So you're going to lay on your back with your legs elevated above your heart level and your knees bent. So if people are at home, lay on your back, prop your knees up on your couch, get comfortable there, that sort of thing. So, the big thing here is the ratios. We're going to inhale two, hold one, exhale three or four. So, we have a range for the exhale. So, we could inhale for two seconds, hold for one second, then breathe out for three to four, or we could double that. Four second inhale, two second hold, six to eight second exhale. Again, different pattern, different technique. I like the positional setup a lot with this one. Kind of comes from that PRI school of thought a little bit, postural restoration. Physiological sigh. This comes from Stanford neuroscientist Dr. Andrew Huberman. Uh, the goal is activating the parasympathetic nervous system very rapidly to really halt and reduce stress quickly. Big benefit to this and pretty much all of our interventions. You can do them anywhere, right? Breathing. We all do it all the time. So... And it's not really something that's too noticeable, at least not to, you know, just bystanders walking by and stuff. So with this one, you're going to inhale partially through your nose, part way, not fully. Hold for about half a second and then inhale the rest of the way. So kind of go halfway, wait, and then go the rest of the way and breathe out through your mouth. And ideally, your exhale is twice as long as your inhale. Do this for about a minute and notice how you feel afterwards, right? You're going to kind of start to relax a little bit, settle down a little bit, simmer down. This is something I actually use in running. If I feel like my heart rate is getting too high or I'm getting too amped up, I'll use this breathing pattern just in part way, in the rest of the way, out slow to kind of knock things down and relax a little bit. And this has actually helped me increase my running performance. Now, I know I'm not really running too much right now in the Arizona heat. Uh, you know, that's the East Coast Pennsylvanian in me. But uh, this is something that has helped me in the past that I think can really help. So 
tying those uh, breathing interventions in with exercises, right? So maybe we go with that kind of laying out our back, parasympathetic breathing, say diaphragmatic breathing, like we talked about, right? So maybe we start with that, just get the breathing down. Then maybe we pair in a stomach vacuum, some core activation. Then maybe we pair that with some kind of other movement, right? So maybe we breathe in, brace the core, and then do a chin tuck, or we do a bridge, or we do a a single leg bridge, or we do something else uh, that it would be like an exercise in that position, something else that we could do other than chin tucks and bridges. So we could do single leg bridge, we could do a bent knee fallout, we could look at LTRs, a little bit more of a mobility thing there. Uh, we could also do this and say, let's let's pick quadruped, right? We could get up in hands and knee position, start doing that breathing, and then add in some core activation. Then we could add in that core activation and breathing and move a move an arm. We could move a leg. We could move both an arm and a leg. We could do them on opposite sides. We could do it on the same side. The sky's the limit. We could do uh, stretching in that position. We could do that thread-the-needle stretch. We could do some different cat-cow, different kinds of spine mobility stuff. We could kind of do this in any position, right? We could go half-kneeling. We could go tall-kneeling, standing, you name it. So the sky is the limit with these interventions. There's a lot of tie-in, too, to squat, deadlift, Olympic lifts here, and breathing. So as we talked about with those sympathetic interventions, make sure you try these Again, make sure you have the right patient. Make sure they're clear to do them. We don't want things to get worse. But if someone doesn't have blood pressure issues, if someone has no known cardiovascular pathologies, nothing wrong pulmonary, and they don't have anything that would say, you know, I should not do this, then try it because this can have a vast difference. Uh, When I was working, uh, there was one day there when I was fortunate enough to get like an hour or so with uh, Dr. Rhodey there. And she had a patient who had some squat dysfunction. And I cued him to breathe in and then brace his core. And then he squatted and he got about 10 to 15 degrees lower because of his ability to brace and stabilize proximally. And again, proximal stability allows for distal mobility. So in conclusion, breathing and breath work can impact your stress, your sleep, and your spine stability. So those were kind of the three S's that we talked about. Uh, And it can also kind of help to impact those hypertonic muscles. We talked a little bit about the scalenes and upper cervical muscles. Uh, Our ability to optimize these three things is all a big piece of holistic care, whether you're in physical therapy or fitness. If people have low stress and they sleep well and they can stabilize their spine, you can heal and treat so much. The sky's the limit. Uh, We also talked about some different research-backed methods for breathing, but there's so many more out there. And if you're someone who says, you know what, I don't know about this, right? Like, I'm not buying it yet. I want you to look up Wim Hof, W-I-M-H-O-F, the Iceman. He's a Dutch extreme athlete and I will make the argument he is the world's most extreme athlete and he will tell you any day that breathing and breath work unlocked his potential. He has over 20 world records. He ran a full marathon in the Arctic Circle wearing just a pair of shorts. He 
also ran a full marathon in a desert with no water. He climbed Mount Everest wearing just his shorts. And he also sat in an ice bath for one hour, 54 minutes. So almost two hours. I am not certified as a Wim Hof instructor. So I am not in the position to really talk about his techniques and that sort of thing on the podcast. However, I highly recommend you check out his book and his books, I should say, and his content because he has some amazing stuff out there if you're looking to get more into breathing and breath work. So with that, that's going to do it for this episode. So I'm going to turn it over to questions and I'm going to add in a little kind of summary of some of that discussion at the end. Uh, With that, thank you so much for listening and tuning in. Give me like five more minutes on this episode and you'll hear all about what we discussed after this episode here in person. So a lot of our discussion was kind of framed around this chicken or egg kind of uh, thing that I kept alluding to throughout the throughout the uh, podcast, throughout the presentation there, is we don't have a firm way of knowing, and there's no way we'll ever really know for sure if breathing is the cause or a side effect of, you know, altered patterns here. So is poor sleep causing changes in breathing or is changes in breathing causing poor sleep? Is pain or altered movement patterns causing alterations in breathing? Or does altered breathing cause pain and movement pattern dysfunction? We have no way of knowing one versus the other, right? Again, chicken or the egg, which came first? To this day, we still don't have a sound answer. But the big takeaway is breathing is an essential piece to the puzzle here. It's not something we can just up and ignore and expect it to get better. In fact, we can treat other things, but if we don't treat breathing a piece of that puzzle, other problems might arise in the future. This problem might come back. So as part of what I call holistic care or holistics, right? My company is called Brawn Body Training Holistics because we look at the entire person and do everything we can to help them. That holistic component can really make or break things. I'm telling you, it's that 1%, that sweat in the small stuff, the looking where no one else does, that can make all the difference in the world. So we talked about that quite a bit, and we also talked about some kind of application to physical therapy, right? So we talked about billing for orthopedic clinics, you know. Do we bill this as neuro-rehab? Do do we uh, bill it as... Uh, therapeutic exercise, or how do we build this? Do we build it as education, home training? Uh, we kind of concluded that depending on your situation, neuro or education would either one or both would be good. And we kind of talked that the education piece is probably the biggest one here. Because if you're treating a patient, you're seeing them, what, 30 minutes to an hour most of the time. So them breathing correctly there for 30 minutes to an hour, two to 4% of their day, that's not going to make as much of a difference as if they do it in the 20 plus hours that they're outside of your clinic walls. So keep that in mind and kind of put this on the patient, right? Patient autonomy, take charge of this. This is something free. This is something you can do. This is something you can learn more about and kind of let them run with it for the most part and kind of 
reiterate it every now and then, kind of poke the bear a little bit, like, hey, have you been doing this? How's this been going? Can you tell me about it? That sort of thing. So with that, that's going to do it for this episode of the Brawn Body Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Really appreciate all of your support. If you could, make sure you're following at Brawn Body on Instagram and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or whatever you're listening on. I'd also really appreciate it if you could share our podcast with a friend, someone you know might benefit from hearing what we've been offering. I'd really appreciate that. And last, if you're listening on iTunes, give us a little review if you don't mind. Thank you as always. We really appreciate all of you, and we'll see you next week.